From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Watch your mailbox. You should get your ballot any day now. Colorado's elections have been by mail for about a decade, but the process came under a lot more scrutiny in 2020. And questions linger on in the news about election integrity from candidates and from family and friends. I think that there's a lot of things that people just don't know about how the whole process works. And most of us, unfortunately, don't have an opportunity to go and actually see behind the scenes ourselves. On Colorado Matters today, a special CPR News and KRCC documentary follows one voter as she turns in her primary ballot. All right, into the slot of goose. Oh, pushing in a little bit. There it goes. Through the steps of how it gets counted, you'll see how elections really work in Colorado. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A persistent campaign to overturn the 2020 election, or at least cast doubt on it, has made many Americans question whether they can trust our voting system. Baseless allegations of fraud in Georgia and other states, amplified by Mr. Trump. This election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country fueled the violent Capitol siege. Election deniers are winning Republican primary races in critical battleground states. If you wanted to destroy democracy, the first thing you do is turn members of that country against each other. And the second thing you do is to get people to start doubting the validity of the elections. It's affected how Coloradans voted in the primary just a few months ago. I did not even feel comfortable, you know, putting my votes into a drop box, so I'm coming in person. We don't want machines. We want people voting in person. We want residents voting and not anyone that doesn't live here. So much of what we think we know about elections is filtered through the people trying to win votes. So today, we take you behind the scenes of the state's election system. You will see how it really works. To cut through the misinformation, my colleague, Matt Bloom, will introduce you to the people and show you the mechanisms in place to count every vote and prevent fraud in Colorado's elections. I think that people just think that they collect ballots and then they go through them and it's not really like that. I can't honestly say that before I had this job, I could have defended the system. In the latest episode of Colorado In-Depth, a podcast of special reporting from CPR News. Matt takes this journey with a lifelong Coloradan who votes, but hasn't really understood how it works until now. Back in 2020, Haley Livermore was living with her parents in Littleton. Every night, she and her husband would sit down with her mom and dad for dinner. They'd talk about how work was that day, comment on the food, pretty typical stuff. But that all changed one night right after Election Day. I don't remember how it started for sure. I think I probably made a throwaway comment about how funny it was that, you know, Trump was slashing out again, mailing ballots. Then President Donald Trump was losing the race against Joe Biden, but hadn't conceded. 
He'd been putting on blast false claims about fraud in mail-in ballots. Haley, who had lived in Colorado all her life and almost always voted by mail, thought Trump's claims were overblown. But her mom brought up concerns about mail-in ballots, stuff that Haley had never heard her say before. You know, she was worried about the security issue that might arise if somebody who doesn't even care about voting gets sent a ballot and what happens to that ballot. Haley recalls her mom cited a Fox News story that claimed people were voting with ballots mailed to dead people. Haley's parents had always been big advocates for voting and never cast much doubt on the system before. So it caught Haley off guard to hear her mom suddenly talk this way. I think at the time, I was becoming more aware of the discussion about voting rights and how a lot of times these laws about voter registration can be set up in a way that disenfranchises voters of color or people from lower class backgrounds. So I think I probably went on the extreme of just whatever, just let everybody vote. I'm guessing it was pretty emotional at that point. <laughs> she remembers getting up from the table and storming off. That was the first of many heated conversations around the dinner table that fall. Even now, two years later, there's still tension around the issue. I've gotten a little cautious about talking to politics with them because it could be a bit of a landmine. This is Colorado In-Depth from CPR News. I'm Matt Bloom. Election skepticism has come home to dinner tables across America. Haley worries this issue could drive such a big wedge in her family that she may not have a relationship with her parents at all. It seems like we all have a story like this now. A family member or close friend who we disagree with so strongly about the fundamentals of our democracy that we're driven apart. The country and our democracy itself are also being driven apart. If it wasn't obvious when thousands of people violently stormed the Capitol to reject election results, some Americans are losing confidence in the U.S. voting system. People have physically threatened election officials in Colorado for doing their jobs. Candidates are basing campaigns nationwide on false claims of voter fraud. Lawmakers in at least 19 states passed laws last year that restrict voting access. The consequences are very real. Skepticism doesn't just come from one party or one type of voter. People whose relatives were not allowed to vote because of their race, gender, or economic status, or people who don't speak English natively often have their own reasons for distrusting the way things are run. Those reasons may be different than what we've heard from the loudest voices over the past two years, but the result's the same. Overall, more skepticism means less participation in elections, and that's bad for democracy. In Haley's case, she wants to change her parents' minds and be able to have conversations with them again about this topic without things blowing up. She thought a good place to start would be educating herself on the facts of exactly how elections work. That's how she met me. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you doing? It's June 2022, a week or so ahead of the primaries in Colorado. I'd been looking for a Coloradan who wanted to know more about voting here. Haley answered my call out. She invited me to her townhouse in Littleton to watch her open up her ballot. She comes to the door in comfy pink overalls. I love your overalls. They're yeah, so thank cute. You. I was trying to do something that would be like 
what I would actually wear walking at home. <laughs> yeah, I, love it. I was like, well, let me not pajama pants, but I can do overalls. Overalls feel comfy enough. <laughs> to vote, yes, to vote in, we need to be comfortable. Usually at home, I'm hanging out in my living room doing the ballot with my husband. So yeah. Haley is 34. She's voted in most elections since she turned 18, and she's especially passionate about local public transit issues since she uses it to get to work. Like most people in Colorado, Haley votes by mail, and she's a fan. If I don't know about a person or a bill, I can get on my phone and Google it and like look into what their election website says about them. We sit down at a table on her front porch, and she pulls her ballot out of her purse. Went ahead and opened the envelope earlier, so it's just me getting it out of the envelope. The outside of the envelope has her name, her address, and the logo for the county clerk's office printed on it. That's all information that the state updates automatically when you register your car or get a new driver's license or when someone files state paperwork, like a death certificate. Colorado's automatic registration system has been in place for three years now. And it's worth pointing out, only registered voters get mailed ballots. Haley has lived at her townhouse since she bought it a few years back, so she hasn't had to change anything recently. I, I noticed there's actually a sheet in here, too, that mentions all the drop-off centers, which is great. After she finishes pulling everything out of her envelope, she picks up a pen to start voting. I think on this pen, I already used up all my blue ink. Oh, well, it's still working. Let's check black just to see. Oh, I think actually blue's better. Let's do blue then. <laughs> Once she decides on what pen color to use, she makes her way through some of the big ticket races. We got senator and our congressman, uh, the governor, secretary of state. We've got a lot of stuff up this year. She does a little research as she goes over the names. She then fills in bubbles for each race on her ballot. Then she licks the envelope, seals it shut, and signs her name in a little box on the outside. It's the standard millennial messy signature because we barely learned cursive in school. What she just did has two security measures built in to make sure she's voting legally. There's her signature and a barcode on the side that links with her registration. Together we walk to the nearest drop box down the street at Arapahoe Community College to drop it off. Ooh, okay, the box says Vote Armor, so I guess that's the company that makes it secure. As we walk over to the white metal box, she pulls her ballot envelope out of the backpack and looks for the drop slot. All right, into the slot of goose. Oh, trying to push it in a little bit. There it goes. We take a step back, and she notices something on the front of the box. There are a lot of printed signs that she's never really looked at before. And there's even like a little sign about... The county, uh, this is drop-off box. Oh, you can't do, it looks like you can't do, it says election-related activity. Can't be done within 100 feet. So I'm guessing that means you can't, like... Campaign or something. Yeah. Turns out, despite how passionately she believes in voting and the safety of elections, there's a lot about the rules that Haley doesn't know. With the floodgates open, one question leads to the next. Even though I believe voting is secure, I don't actually know the processes they use to determine, okay, this process is working and it is secure or not. And I guess it would be good to know, <laughs> like, a certain form of voting is more secure or less secure. How do we know that the ballots are safe? Just for, you know, especially because that information would be good to be able to tell people like my parents who are now concerned about it a little bit, to be able to say, like, 
well, here's the process and, and here's how they can know that we're getting votes from people who are eligible and not from people who are dead or a dog or whoever. Haley isn't the only Colorado voter wondering these things. I cast a wide net asking what people want to know about how elections work here. We got dozens of questions. What's Colorado doing to ensure voting machines aren't hacked? How are signatures verified to make sure people don't vote fraudulently? How do I know my vote is counted? I promised Haley I would try to track down answers and bring them to her to help her be better informed. I would love to come back and like share it with you and get your reaction and just kind of like hear your thoughts. Yeah, I would love that. (laughs) Probably, obviously, I love to talk, so. (laughs) First, I want to see what happens to Haley's ballot after she drops it in the box. I wait a couple hours after Haley votes. Then a pair of election workers walk up to the same metal drop box on the Arapahoe Community College campus. Both women wear orange vests. Around each of their necks, they wear a name tag. One is red and says Lisa Hagney, Republican. The other, blue, says Catherine Dunn, Democrat. This bipartisan team will transport ballots from this box back to the county's main facility so they can be counted. To start, Lisa, the Republican, kneels down and unlocks the drop box. Then she scoops up big handfuls of ballots from inside and drops them into a different metal box used to transport the ballots. Lisa shuts and locks the main drop box that's now empty. Then she secures the metal transport box with an orange zip tie. Oh, the zip tie has has a little QR code on it. And then we match it to the paperwork. It's recorded on here. Catherine, the Democrat, stands nearby with a clipboard watching everything. That's important because the county has people from each party do this pickup job together to make sure one side can't accuse the other of misbehavior, like throwing away ballots or putting fake ones into the mix. Once Lisa, the Republican, is done unloading the drop box, Catherine, the Democrat, writes the time of day on a spreadsheet. This is today. This is the time we picked it up. This is where we are. This is a 24-hour box. 8490s, the seal, both Lisa and I verify. She signs it, I sign it, and then we take it home. Home means back to the county's main elections facility. All counties in the state have been doing things in this bipartisan way for at least 10 years. I follow as Catherine and Lisa make a few more stops at drop boxes around the county. Lisa, the Republican, tells me this is her first year working on the job. There's a lot of scrutiny right now. That's why I did this job. I wanted to see what it was like and the whole process. In 2020, Lisa voted for Trump. She remembers watching the news and hearing about claims of fraud and rigged election systems. She was alarmed, but also skeptical. She didn't really understand what the former president was talking about. She got curious and decided to get involved. This year, she applied for a job with Arapahoe County, passed a background check, and got the gig. She says the whole experience has reassured her. I think that there's more to it than what people think. I think that people just think that they, people collect ballots and then they go through them, and it's not really like that. It's so much more secure. She's also been surprised by how easy it is to work with people in the opposing party. I mean, just because we have a difference of opinion, I'm a Republican, she's a Democrat, it doesn't mean that we can't get along. But it is, I think it makes it more secure when you have both sides too, because 
then you don't have somebody say, well, there was only Democrats working, because I think that's what the election process people think that, or vice versa. She turns to Catherine as they hand off the locked metal box of ballots to another team inside the Arapahoe County elections facility. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, what makes me feel best about it is that the whole process is bipartisan and it's all people who care about voting, regardless of your party. And everybody who's here, from the people who collect the votes like us, the staffers who manage the warehouse, to the people behind us opening the ballots, they're all about getting the votes processed. Once they finish, the pair heads out for another round of pickups. I stick around at the warehouse, though, to keep following the ballots. This facility they're in is a fortress. Security cameras roll 24 hours a day. I have to sign a visitor log, and then an employee buzzes me through a series of locked doors to get where the action happens. We get inside the main floor, which has soaring ceilings. First, workers send the ballots through a long machine that takes a photo of the outside of each envelope. You can actually get a text or email when the machine does this with your ballot, if you want to know for sure that the county got it. It's through a state program called Ballot Tracks. The machine sends the photos it takes to a signature verification room. Verifying the signatures on the outside of the ballots is one way to catch potential fraud. Actual people do the signature verification. A few dozen people sit around on computers and match every single signature on the ballot envelopes to ones that the state has on file, from the DMV, or wherever you registered to vote. If the verifiers say any looks suspicious, the machine will separate it from the rest. It is a repetitive, mind-numbing process to watch. But the people who work here love it. We are very serious about the integrity of the elections, and everyone here is, is vetted. Thomas Benton is a retired insurance claims investigator from Aurora. He's one of the people who sit at a computer here all day and look at images of ballot signatures side by side. And in order to just maintain the integrity of the voting process, we just want to make sure that the signatures are, in fact, uh, a match. Almost 99% of ballots cast in Colorado meet the test of signature verification. The 1% or so that don't get flagged, and voters have a chance to show that the signature is, in fact, theirs. It's a key part of rooting out any fraud. But it is also one place where efforts to find bad actors end up preventing some perfectly legal ballots from getting counted. CPR News has found in past reporting that counties in Colorado with higher populations of racial and ethnic minorities have some of the highest rates of rejected ballots in the state. Younger voters also see their ballots get rejected at higher rates than older voters. The state's been working on how to make this system better, so legal ballots have an equal opportunity to be counted. And Thomas, the signature verifier, isn't the final judge and jury. If we can't individually determine that they are consistent, then the signatures are sent to another level where we have two verification judges review it at the same time and then make a final determination on whether to accept the signatures or not. This is all happening before the ballot is even opened, all to make sure people are voting legally. Signature judges are bipartisan, just like the women who picked up the ballots and brought them here. Side note, if you're in the 1% and your ballot gets rejected, you have a chance to fix it. 
Look out for a text to your phone or a letter in the mail, and make sure to respond if you want your ballot to count. Before I head to the next counting step, I have to wonder how Thomas can stay focused when he's looking at this screen all day. Is it fun to look at signatures? Is it like kind of tedious? Your eyes get tired? Well, I, you know, I think it's very interesting, the, the whole process. It can get kind of routine and tedious after a while, just like anything else. But we have sufficient break time, and I think a lot of us have fun just being in each other's presence and engaging. Like Thomas, most of the election workers here are retired, and we're just looking for something to do. Jerry Testerman is a lifelong voter from Littleton who used to be skeptical of elections. I can't honestly say that before I had this job, I could have defended the system. Jerry's job here starts after the signatures on the outside get verified. The ballots go through an opening station, and then Jerry feeds them through machines that scan each ballot like a copier. This sounds kind of mundane, like in an office, a high school intern would do the copying. But this step has gotten a lot of flack recently. Election deniers say that these copy machines and the software installed on them are hacked or manipulated in some way to favor one party over the other, to change votes. Election officials refute that. And so does Jerry. We can't tamper with them. We aren't online, so anybody else can tamper with us. We have the integrity of the, the processes here. Just to expand on that a little, these copy machines are never connected to the internet. This locked room is monitored with closed-circuit cameras. Jerry and the other workers here have to track the number of ballots in each batch that they copy. So if several were to go missing or something, Jerry says the clerk's office would know. I think the main thing is I'd like them to understand that the people processing the ballots, working in this warehouse, in this facility, in any of the jobs, there is nothing that we can do to influence the outcome of this election. All we can do is make sure every ballot gets counted. Once Jerry finishes feeding ballots through the machines, a software system run by the county tabulates the votes. It's worth repeating that this all happens offline as a security measure. Then workers use a different computer to upload the results to the Secretary of State's office on election night. The state aggregates the results from every county. Then we find out who the winners are. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Doing good, thank you. After my visit to the county election facility, I go back to Haley's porch. I've learned a lot about the actual process of counting the ballots and... I would love to share a few things that I've learned with you, if that's cool. That'd be great. I tell her about how Lisa and Catherine collect the ballots, how Thomas spends all day staring at computer screens to verify signatures and search for fraud, and how Jerry feeds ballots through copy machines in a locked room unconnected to the internet. Um, I think it's, you know, really cool. Haley is a little overwhelmed, but loves hearing about how bipartisan everything is. It's kind of good to hear, like, that there's still people that are really passionate about the process on both sides that care a lot about making sure it's secure and safe. She still has questions before she feels comfortable talking to her parents to try to reassure them about the safety of elections. So Haley and I make a plan to meet up again. We'll go back to the warehouse to see how they check if everything worked. But first, I have more questions, too. 
specifically about whether Colorado's election system can reassure people who distrust it based on the fact that for so long, they and their ancestors were prevented from voting. Back after a break with Colorado In-Depth. Mail-in voting has remarkably increased the number of people who vote in Colorado. The Secretary of State's office says that turnout has jumped nearly 10% over the past decade, since the state started automatically mailing ballots to every registered, active voter. Many counties break new records every election. The change in turnout has been especially big among groups that have historically had the least amount of access to voting, such as Black and what the official records call Hispanic voters. But it's confusing because those groups are still less likely to vote via mail than white voters. Why? Hi, Hi Joan, I'm Matt. Good to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you? Thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. I went near the top of the food chain to talk more about how mistrust manifests for all kinds of people. Joan Lopez is the big boss in Arapahoe County elections, where I've been monitoring the voting process with Haley. Joan is a self-described election nerd. There's a photo on her office wall of her with a giant Uncle Sam hat smiling with both thumbs up. She's been that way since she was a kid growing up in a pretty diverse neighborhood in Aurora, west of Denver. My mom is so just active and, you know, she's running down and we'd stand in, in line with all of our, uh, our neighbors and talk to our neighbors and everything. As she grew up and started a career in local government, Colorado made the switch to mostly vote by mail. Shortly after she got elected clerk here in 2018, she held a listening tour. At one stop near where she grew up, she met a ton of people angry because their neighborhood didn't have a ballot drop box in it. Ballots put into these boxes count as voting by mail. So fewer boxes in black and brown neighborhoods would logically mean less voting this way. I just had one particular person, especially that sticks out, just saying that he was enraged that that he was picking up his neighbors and that didn't have transportation and had to drive miles to get them to a voting center. And he should be upset. People have a right to vote, and you need to make it easier. This lack of access, Lopez says, makes people trust the system less and less likely to vote. After hearing the complaints, she opened a Dropbox and polling center at a library in the neighborhood. And it's been really popular. Now we have this big, huge room, and there's a lot of activity, and there's just people voting, and they're not being turned away. It's exciting. Joan isn't the only elections clerk in Colorado who wants to increase access to voting like this. This fall, Colorado's expected to have more ballot drop boxes than ever out across the state. Another source of mistrust Joan mentions are language barriers. Plenty of registered, legal voters don't speak English as a first language. So another effort Joan and the state are making is that this year people can vote in person using a Spanish-language ballot. I think that that just invites uh, first-language Spanish speakers into the process and makes them more comfortable and knowing about what they're voting for in their community. Now, obviously, that doesn't help if someone wants to vote by mail, 
So Jones says the county will also post a sample ballot online that's in Spanish. To make sure that people understand the English mailed ballot that came to them. So if they needed to read it in Spanish, it's posted online. Do you know if the turnout is helping drive more people to vote from backgrounds that have been disenfranchised in the past, like African-Americans? Do you know if those programs are helping that at all? I think it makes it more convenient for everybody. There's always room for more access. Just like there's a McDonald's on every corner, (laughs) a Starbucks on every corner. Yeah, I mean, I don't know where we're going to be in, in 20 years. We'll see. Less access is never an option. More access, always. And not just because it makes it easier to vote. It builds trust, Jones says. So does lifting the curtain for everyday voters like Haley. Our journey behind the scenes of the election here continues when we meet back up, this time at the Arapahoe County Elections Division. This is the big fortress where I'd seen them count ballots for the primary. I see there's a sign that is under video surveillance 24 hours a day. That's good to know. No firearms are allowed. It's about two weeks after the June primary. We're here today to watch firsthand how the state audits election results, to double check that ballots got counted correctly. We're standing outside the front door, noticing all the security measures. We can't even get into the building without, oh, there is a ring bell for service. Should we hit that, maybe? Um, let's try it. Yeah. I see a button, I want to press it. (laughs) We pressed it. Yeah, we pressed the button. After a minute, a worker comes and lets us in. Hi, how are you? Thanks for letting us in. We sign into a log, get shown through several locked doors, and into the middle of the warehouse where workers stack large plastic tubs of ballots and rows on tables. 217-86. They're setting up an audit of the election results. They'll take a sample of the ballots that were cast and make sure that what's on the paper ballot matches the electronic records that counties use to tabulate their election results. If they find enough discrepancies, they could trigger a recount by hand. Every county in Colorado does this to double-check the accuracy of elections after all the votes are counted. Colorado was the first state to require an audit like this, and other states are replicating it. Overseeing things here is Peg Pearl. She's Arapahoe County's deputy director of elections. She's dressed professionally in a brown pantsuit, talking into a camera that's live-streaming this whole process on the county's Facebook page. So the risk-limiting audit is our way of basically double-checking that our tabulation computers uh, correctly counted the votes that the voters cast. Workers pick out ballots from storage tubs at random. Each ballot has a unique number to identify it. The workers cross-check the ballots with the votes on file from election night. So if there are what they call discrepancies, basically things that don't match up, that aren't attributable to human error, someone accidentally clicked the wrong button or accidentally pulled the wrong ballot, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Then the state can see that information from all the counties and decides, okay, there's a few discrepancies here. We can't reach our threshold of confidence. Again, discrepancies between what the paper ballots show and how the Secretary of State recorded a vote would trigger a recount or at least more auditing. Now, the auditors have finished going through the 145 ballots they pulled. 
The system spits out a paper report on the results, and a worker walks it over to Peg. She sits down at a table with a Republican and a Democratic Party representative. We ended okay. up with one discrepancy out of 145. Um, I can find out if you guys are curious. One of the party reps nods his head. So, yeah. Okay. Thank you. We have a discrepancy. Now we get to see how they'll deal with it. Every time this happens, officials have to start looking for clues to figure out what went wrong. It could mean something was up with the ballot counting machines on election night, or as Peg explains, a hiccup in the audit. So it could be something that's a human error, like a typo, or it could be something that potentially could be a ballot that had um, a bunch of markings on it from the voter. There's really no way to tell until you look at the actual ballot. As Peg talks, a worker slides a copy of the ballot in question onto the table. On one of the candidate boxes, you can clearly see the voter drew a large X over the candidate's name, but also filled in the bubble next to the X'd out candidate. The voter also drew an arrow from the bubble to a candidate's name in a different race. As a layperson watching this, I have to admit, I could not tell what the voter meant to do here. Oh, well, that wasn't ours. So it doesn't tell us specifically what the discrepancy was, but you can take a pretty good guess. In the original election, you guys know it would have gone to adjudication and a bipartisan team would have made a decision based on the state voter intent guide to not count that. Then today, when a different team looked at the same ballot using the voter intent guide, they would make a decision as well. So those two decisions just didn't match. Hmm. And that's the discrepancy Hmm. we have right here. In summary, the team auditing this ballot made a different conclusion than the team who looked at it on primary night. Mystery solved. It's a red flag for sure. But, Peg explains, it's not enough to trigger a recount. Because it wasn't an issue of a voting machine making a mistake. And the parts of the ballot that confused people didn't have to do with the closest races. The final vote tallies were separated by hundreds or thousands of votes. And if there were any other ballots like this in the batch they pulled today, the audit would have caught them. So it still matters, obviously, and we want to check all of those. But it is a good example, too, of why we have bipartisan teams doing that sort of voter intent move. And so having it as a bipartisan team, we know that they are doing it in the interest of uh, fairness and doing what they really think is right. In Colorado, these audits have never found enough discrepancies or errors to trigger a full recount. But in some cases, they have brought about more rounds of audits. In this instance, after discussing the ballot, Peg and the two party representatives nod their heads and sign a certification form. This audit is over. The election officials feel good about the ballot counting. So Haley and I make our way out, back through the locked doors. If you had to take one thing away from today and observing everything, what would it be? that throughout the whole process, um, people were watching. Just even the fact, like seeing these pairs of people that are from two different parties, like working together and being really polite and actually like even chit-chatting and getting along made me feel a lot more hopeful about our current political process than I usually do. It's kind of a nice reminder that a lot of these people on both sides are actually people. Feeling a lot more hopeful made her feel ready to talk to her parents. Broaching the topic still made her nervous though. Because remember the last time this came up? Family dinner ruined. But now, she's better prepared for where this conversation might go. Hi, Mom. Hey, sweetie. (laughs) 
Haley's parents, Rebecca and Chuck Livermore, moved to California last year to care for an elderly loved one. So we arranged a meeting over Zoom so Haley could reconnect. How you doing? Doing good. This is kind oh, of good. fun. I haven't seen you and since we were there in uh, January, December, January. So uh, I forgot to tell you, I cut my hair off. Well, oh, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I just came out of the shower, so you can't see it very well. <laughs> oh, hi, Dad. Hi. I kick things off by asking what they think of Haley visiting the elections facility and seeing the process firsthand. What was your reaction when you heard about that? I think it's really good because I think that there's a lot of um, things that people just don't know about how the whole process works. And most of us, unfortunately, don't have an opportunity to go and actually see behind the scenes ourselves. And I think that it'd be good if, if more of us could have an opportunity to do that type of thing. In Colorado, did you feel like elections were secure? They were done well? Did you have any thought about any opinions, any thoughts about that? We never heard any yeah. um, any, any, any yeah. uh, theories of voter fraud or um, any problems with, with any of the elections yeah. that I recall. Yeah. As her dad says this, Haley has a skeptical expression on the screen. When they lived together, Haley's mom watched Fox News a lot, and Haley remembers that night at the dinner table. Haley, does that um does that ring true to you? Um, I remember a little bit when like mail-in ballots were the hot topic back in 2020. Dis- I-, I thought we'd had a little bit of debate about it. I think that the thing that happened with 2020 is mail and ballots being, well, at least it depended on the state. But um, I personally think you should have to request it, you know, rather than it just being this blanket, you know, goes out to everyone because people move and pe- whatever, you know, and especially if people haven't voted for 10 years or whatever. I mean, what's the point of sending them a ballot unless they actually ask for it? You know, now I I think it obviously should be multiple ways people can request one, you know, by phone, online, in person or whatever. But but yeah, so I think that would be my only misgiving. Yeah, I don't think you want to make voting difficult for anyone, but uh, it should be safe. Haley, is that the the debate you remember having? Now that mom said that, I think that's probably what it was, actually, yeah. Remember, Haley's argument was that making mail-in ballots request-only has trade-offs. It would add another barrier to voting, which research shows leads to longer wait times to vote in person. That tends to disproportionately impact communities of color, something that really bothered Haley. Her mom does not want to get rid of voting by mail. She thinks people should have to request a ballot instead of getting it automatically. I think voting is important enough that it should be valued. And so to ask for a ballot to me isn't a huge hardship, you know, but it shows that you actually care enough to ask, you know, for one. So that that'd be the only thing. But we don't you know, we've thought a lot about this issue and, uh, you know, you don't want it to be where uh, it's a financial hardship or things like that for people, because that should never play mm-hmm. into whether or not somebody can vote. You know, somebody's personal standing in life should not impact whether or not they should, you know, can vote. And so you want it to be accessible to everybody, you know. Haley and her parents discovered they actually agree on a lot about the way Colorado runs elections. They both feel like bipartisanship throughout the process is valuable, 
and important. Learning more about the statewide audits gives all of them peace of mind that the system in Colorado is doing its job. What is at stake if people don't trust that our election system is working? I think it would just cause a further divide among people, you know, because then there's less trust and, you know, there's there, there would just be more conflict if people if anyone feels like their voice is not really heard, then that leads to all types of um, turmoil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the more that people are confident that voting is secure, the more it does feel like that at least you're doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you're frustrated with how the system's working right now, that at least you have a small chance to kind of push things the way you're hoping will be better. I don't know if there's a lot that an individual can do to, you know, change the voting system. I mean, we can be vocal about it, but uh, I think it comes down to, you know, to quote Ronald Reagan, who was quoting a Russian proverb, trust but verify, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we we should trust the system, but we also should verify that everything's being done by board. Yeah. And it sounds like that's what's happening with in Colorado with these audits or different states that are doing audits or whatever. And so I think that's a very healthy thing. The conversation wraps up on a cordial note. Thanks, Mom and Dad. All right. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. After we close the Zoom with her parents, I check in with Haley one last time. I was a little nervous <laughs> um, just because I, my my mom and I often disagree on stuff, so I wasn't sure how that was going to go. She tells me that it was actually the first time they'd seen each other face-to-face in over six months since they visited around the holidays, and it meant a lot to her. I know, it seems really funny because, like, I'm I'm pretty chill, like, the people I don't know that well, um, but the people I'm, like, very intimately familiar with. I care so much. Like, I'm doing it right now. Like, I get into tears. And she says it was the first time anything related to politics had come up without some kind of blow up. I haven't talked about my parents about politics in a while until this story started happening. Uh, because, like, straight up, eventually my, my psychiatrist was like, why keep having these discussions? You don't think you're going to change your parents' mind. Uh, you don't feel good after these conversations. You're just getting into emotional arguments that end up just being you and your mom kind of sniping at each other. So, like, because of not being sure, like, when that emotional tripwire would happen, um, I just kind of stopped altogether. I, I feel a bit more comfortable talking about the process of voting because that's less of a... It's politically fraught a little bit, but at the same time, like, you know, I think both me and my parents talked about, like, voting's always been important to us. We've always believed that everybody should vote. That was how I was raised, and that's something I I definitely still believe in, I think, even more strongly now than I did as a kid. She expects she and her parents disagree about who they want to win in the November elections. She's accepted that. More importantly, she thinks she can start having conversations about our country and elections again. But she may just approach them differently, like starting on common ground. Matt Bloom reporting for CPR's podcast, Colorado In Depth, with special thanks to producer Emily Williams. 
For more of this kind of reporting, follow Colorado In-Depth in your favorite podcast app. For help filling out your ballot, you can now get our voter guide at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. In the late 60s, shop students at Denver's Manual High School were given an unusual project, build a plane, designed by their teacher, Lamar Steen. He was a big man, and as an avid aerobatic pilot, he'd spent a lot of time cramped into small stunt planes. So he designed a high-performance biplane that could accommodate a larger pilot more comfortably and be easy enough for amateur builders. In just over a year, Mr. Steen's students produced a prototype, then watched as their teacher climbed into the open cockpit, took off into the blue Colorado sky, and turned loop after loop after loop. They called the design the Steen Skybolt after the Manual High School mascot, the Thunderbolt. And since that first Skybolt in 1970, many more have been built around the world, nurturing STEM skills and allowing many more to defy gravity. A Colorado postcard from CPR with the support of Dazzle Jazz in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A state program that combines affordable housing with community art space in rural communities has opened its first installation. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce takes us to Trinidad's Space to Create. Excuse me, hi. Michelle Helm is not a professional artist. She works producing natural toothpastes and providing low-cost dental care in downtown Trinidad. She used to live in the mountains outside town until last year when the smoke from western wildfires started making her 14-year-old son's respiratory problems worse, and she had to move away. The space opened up and we were able to just really heal and find a really clean space. Helm and her son are now tenants in Trinidad's Space to Create. Their apartment's really nice. It feels really open with new appliances, high ceilings. I mean, I bet it's like 15 yep, feet tall. that's what I was going to guess, 15, 16. And as she's showing me around, right below us on the ground floor, well-wishers are gathering to celebrate this whole facility's grand opening. We certainly have had naysayers and doubters. That's Marilyn Lusler. She's the executive director of the Corazon de Trinidad Creative District. But I thank those people as well because it kept us on our toes and we worked hard to make sure that this project would be inclusive and would welcome every single person in our community. The name of the installation, Space to Create, that's not just the name of this one site. Trinidad is the pilot for a $45 million state program to create up to nine such projects. Space to Create was passed in 2015, signed by then-Governor John Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper's a U.S. senator now, and he recorded a video message for the grand opening. Thank you for promoting the creative economy in the state of Colorado and, and taking a leadership role in developing an affordable and sustainable space for artists and creatives to live, work, and thrive right here in the heart of Trinidad. The thought is having this all together creates a hub where you're passionate artist types can live upstairs and showcase their work in the galleries and event spaces on the street level. 
A big crowd roams from room to room at Space to Create, into what used to be a vast auto garage. Now an eight-foot-tall frog made from 80 miles of yarn sits in a chair there, knitting a smaller version of himself. There's a table of clay sculptures. They're like aliens or animal spirits or something. Comedians and musicians perform at a stage near that. Kelly Lindquist is the CEO of ArtSpace, which is the Minnesota-based developer Colorado's working with to build these complexes. He says he's seen them transform rural communities in other states. People buy the artwork, or they watch the play, or they watch the performance. And, it, and in that way, it's spreading in the community a new sense of revival and growth that's based on creativity. That will then attract more people to come, which then attracts the restaurants and the barbershop and the hardware store. The town of Ridgeway plans to start moving in the first residents for its own space to create facility this month. More are currently in development in Grand Junction, Grand Lake, Carbondale, and Salida. Ridgeway Mayor John Clark says because the project accepts federal low-income tax credits, they actually are not allowed to cater only to low-income professional creatives. So we'll have people living in our building that might be waiters or busboys or working at a retail shop in town. I think a lot of them will actually be creative people in their spare time because that's what a lot of our community does. Maybe it's the culture of a place like this that inspires people toward artistic endeavor. Um, The neighbors are super nice. Remember Michelle Helm? We said her job is providing sort of naturopathic dental care. Well, this place is definitely still the right fit for her. Being able to use the facility downstairs to create art is amazing. Sure. So we each have our own space downstairs where we can have our own studio. Her son is building figures from cactuses he finds in the nearby hills. And outside their apartment door are these dazzling abstract acrylic paintings Michelle produced, proudly displayed at their new home. In Trinidad, Dan Boyce. CPR News. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Thanks for joining us today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.